Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Hi, and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. Today, we're talking about how to invest like the wealthy with family office expert Richard C. Wilson. I'm Rachel Marshall, along with my co-host, Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Uh, another valuable podcast for people looking to uh, maximize all their financial awareness and integrate this in a family office model. I'm really excited to have Richard here. I know he's an expert in this field. Absolutely. Thank you for having me here. Excellent. Well, Richard, we are happy to have you on the call today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. It should be fun. Excellent. Well, just as we lead in a little bit, I want to tell you a little bit about what we have been covering and how this topic fits in with that, and then give you a little bit of background about Richard as well. So we've completed a series on saving and investing, and we've discussed how to save and invest for maximum control, cash flow, and stability in your personal economy. We always talk about modeling the successful few, and who better to learn from than the successful and those that work regularly with those that are successful. So we know that there's a big difference in the way that the successful handle their financial lives and the status quo strategies, on the other hand, that have money flowing out of our control, limiting our access, and not optimizing cash flow. So we've brought Richard onto the show to discuss how the wealthy invest so you can gain insight and employ strategies on how to invest like the wealthy in your own financial life. We're going to get a window into that ultra-wealthy and benefit from that because we're learning firsthand from someone who has tremendous knowledge and experience in this space. I'm really excited to jump in. A little bit more about Richard. Richard Wilson runs the Family Office Club, the number one largest community in the industry with well over 1,500 registered single and multifamily offices, which manage in excess of $1 trillion in assets under management. At his 10 exclusive events per year, you hear from billionaire family members, top 50 multifamily offices, and secretive single-family offices. They provide live family office training workshops and conferences, best-selling books such as The Single Family Office, Creating, Operating, and Managing the Investments of a Single Family Office, an industry-leading website, weekly podcasts on iTunes, newsletter, webinars, and quarterly events. So they're providing a lot of information. He's also the chairman of Wilson Holding Company, the CEO and head of direct investments in real estate and operating business with the Miami Family Office, the CEO of Billionaire Family Office, and the CEO of Family Office Executive Search. Family Office Club ranks by Inc. 5000 as one of America's fastest growing private companies. So that is a lot, to, um, a lot of accomplishment that you have, Richard, in your space. So tell us a little bit about how you became an expert in the family office space? Sure. Um, essentially, I found in 2006 and 2007, and back when raising capital uh, around the year 2000, that there was just very little information on the family office world, yet there was a lot of information on angel investors, venture capital, institutional investors, wealth management firms. So. At the point in 2006, 2007, I had a, a few clients that had me on a retainer to raise capital for them. And when I was doing so, I was reaching out to wealth management firms 
And every once in a while, I'd bump into one calling themselves a family office. And I realized that those clients were always qualified because they had accredited investors as clients to be allocating to what I was trying to raise capital for. While a normal wealth management firm, that's not always the case. So I said, well, it's silly that even be reaching out to wealth management firms then with these clients, I should just only reach out to family offices. So I went on this mission of doing so. And I found that there was nobody being helpful at all in the family office space. Uh, if I wanted to learn anything, it would be a two-year-old Bloomberg article and a, you know, a one-year-old Financial Times article. And I'd have to read these outdated articles written, written by journalists who had never worked a day in their life in the family office space. I just interviewed a few people via email or the phone and they're trying their best to add value. But uh, I found that I learned the most by meeting in person with family offices. And I was at first just sharing things publicly just to teach myself uh, kind of what was going on, you know, in the industry. And through doing that, um, I just found that people started finding me and they started seeing me as the trail guide, even though for the first couple of years, I was just learning the fundamentals and it just kind of grew from there. That's excellent. And I, I guess this question is probably at the forefront of the mind of any of our listeners right now as well. Can you share with us what exactly is a family office and how is it different from a traditional wealth management, wealth management firm? Sure. Um, a family office is typically or it's supposed to be a more holistic solution for the ultra-wealthy individual. So there's typically two types, a single family office for one individual or family, and then a multifamily office which could serve five families, 20 families, or a couple hundred families that are all worth 10 million, 50 million or more. Typically, to have your own single family office, these families are worth 30 to 50 million or 100 million plus. Uh, four of my clients are worth over a billion dollars each. And then, you know, on the, uh, the multifamily office side, like I said, it could start lower at a, at a $10 million net worth level. But the whole point is that when you're at that level, you do have to worry about multi-generational planning and structures, and even a 1% mistake on taxation of your net worth, um, let's say upon death or upon selling of an asset, could have paid for a full-time team to help you in 20 different ways. So it's really mm -hmm. silly not to have it done holistically and completely in a full balance sheet fashion when like tiny little mistakes could have paid for less chaos, less stress regulatory adherence, et cetera, for you. Excellent. So as you're talking about holistic, I'm hearing multi-generational planning, tax, looking at their complete spectrum and range of financial assets as well. And so you're probably incorporating tax planning as well as estate planning, any legal planning. So there's a whole suite of, of advisors that are holistically working together with that particular family or group of families. Is that right? Right. Yeah, that's right. And to be clear, I think lots of people say, oh, you're a wealth manager. And uh, actually, we don't manage wealth at all. Uh, we don't sell insurance. We simply help families with two things. We help them start and develop their family offices from scratch, which often means finding them an appropriate expert in the insurance world, in the private banking or multifamily office world, or bringing in staff to staff their single family office and just helping them get family office quality service providers in place and their focus and their documentation and the reasoning behind their kind of direct investment portion of their portfolio uh, figured out. So it, it, we found that that's a different role. A lot of people out there have a private banking or wealth management role and few people are being helpful on those who want to start a family office. So I've just chosen to 
kind of fill that void um, so that we're not offering what thousands of other people are. That's excellent, and I really like that distinction that you brought to the table. So you're working directly with the family then who has this wealth and is needing that suite of advisors, and they need help to find them and make sure that team is coordinated. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Right, that's correct. It's like we can help be the glue or help build the glue between all of the different advisors that they're working with or need to be working with and just making sure that each month the systems are in place and that they're being followed and things are always being improved as a system. Kind of like when an entrepreneur starts a business and you grow it and eventually you get to the point where you need to be working on your business and not in your business all of the time. Similarly, uh, when you get to a certain net worth level, you need to make sure that someone, if not yourself, is working on your family office and not inside of just one asset that you own for at least part of your time. That's fascinating. And I'm seeing that you are continually working to improve those relationships as you're growing the family office, not just setting it in place and walking away. Right, right, for sure. So, Richard, would, would that also include things like um, if most of these people, I would imagine, own businesses and multitudes of businesses? So do you also provide business consulting services to these, to these families? And do you also provide uh, some kind of uh, what I would think some people would think are very odd services like uh, personal shopping services um, and planning vacations and things like that so that they really don't have to worry about anything? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we, um, you know, our unique ability has been developing a niche position and a really well-defined marketplace and then building a thought leadership kind of uh, client attracting funnel around that niche position. So to the degree to which we can use that unique ability within the business portfolio of the client, we're always happy to do so. Many times we can use that ability to help them attract deal flow or help them build one of their operating businesses. But it's usually not the reason they come to us. It's usually just an area where we can sometimes add additional value. On the concierge side, we have two families right now asking us for that concierge solution of basically, in one case, what's happening is they have a financial staff of about 15 people, but some of the sisters and cousins who have been living off of the family money their whole lives are always calling into these financial professionals asking for help buying plane tickets, buying a car. So they've asked us to go on retainer, just kind of shielding their financial team from that and just being a concierge hotline mm-hmm. for their family office. So we're working through that now with actually two clients and getting that set up. It wasn't what we intended to do, but we're seeing that a lot of families are asking us for it. And as we've expanded our staff uh, to just about 20 full-time professionals, um, I have someone who's essentially doing that uh, for me, so it's not a big leap now to be offering that to others. It's not a, the most exciting service line to be offering, but we're always on the lookout for, like, how do we be more helpful to these families and just keep a constant communication line open as well, because that, that's a value. You know, that, that's one of the reasons we do some of the executive search work. It just keeps us in touch with who's going where and what compensation is and, you know, talent available in the marketplace. Um, to be plugging in for clients. Yeah, this is a little off the this is a little off the subject matter, but from the from the way you uh, phrase things and a couple of words, um, are you a Dan Sullivan disciple? <laughs> yeah, one of his ten uh, X members. Um, uh, yeah. So I go I to Toronto that. every 
quarter. Yeah. Yeah, I could I could tell. I'm not a I'm not currently a 10x person, but uh, I have done parts of Dan's programs, and um, I follow him religiously. And uh, yeah, I, I could just tell that you were were highly integrated into his programs. Yeah, for sure. I love his stuff, and um, the most referred to, you know, business coach uh, within like the most successful business owners that I know. Some who have become family office, you know, uh, patriarchs themselves, and some that just have highly successful businesses. It seems to be a very consistent, uh, very consistent person that that gets referred to. So that's why I'm part of it. That's great. Excellent. So. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And that was definitely something that I was going to ask you about as well during the course of this conversation. So, Richard, in your experience then working with ultra-wealthy families, there is specific things that they are doing differently than the status quo and specific things that they're looking for. You mentioned attracting the right deal flow. So let's go ahead and dig into some of those strategies or maybe commonalities that you see among wealthy families and the way that they invest and the types of financial strategies that they're looking to employ. So first of all, I know you talk about helping them to become a titan or a gatekeeper in their industry. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, I think it's one of the most valuable questions you guys could ask, and it's what keeps my role interesting all the time is what I do has almost nothing to do with traditional like stocks and bonds and like, you know, managing the risk curve in somebody's stock portfolio. We, we deal with families that built their wealth through owning a business or a portfolio of real estate. And we just help mm-hmm. them build a structure and team and, and service providers that help support that and further it. And so what we get to see is how people built their wealth and how they're trying to get to the next level. So I've got some clients that are worth $300 million and they're working as hard, if not harder now than they ever have before, and their goal might be to become a billionaire, they might still drive a Mercedes today and live in a house that's worth three to $5 million when they could buy a $50 million house. It's not about buying the super yacht. It's not about having the billion to spend. It's kind of about the game and proving to themselves that they always knew they could do it. And many times I think that people get on the other side of the fence of, at some point when you get to where you have no debts, you have enough money that you know that your kids will be fine, get hit by a car, your spouse would be fine, you have enough money to retire if you wanted to and live anywhere in the world. At that point, whatever you choose to do with your life, it is your choice. You no longer have to do anything. So you're fully conscious of the fact that when you dedicate yourself to doing something, then you're really going to typically you know, want to nail it and you're only choosing the thing that you're very excited about because no one's forcing you to do it. It's totally conscious decision on yourself. And because of that conscious choice going into it and there's no persuasion through the need to do something to earn the paycheck or pay off that debt on a house or something, many times these entrepreneurs work uh, harder than they ever have before because they love what they're doing. It's just a game to them. So I'm always looking at how they're playing that game. And many times to your question, to answer it more directly, uh, they're oftentimes dominating a niche or monopolizing a small niche area. It could be a niche real estate strategy uh, that other people haven't caught on to yet. It could be a niche way of generating leads for their business. Many times it's having a few different operating businesses within one industry so that one operating business 
can serve as a lead generator for another and produce kind of self-liquidating leads. So that an example would be, let's say somebody has a commercial real estate business and then a competing family office not only has a commercial real estate investment business, but they also do, you know, office space leasing. They also do maintenance on buildings uh, and they also sell buildings and not just deal with the asset management part. Well, that other group, they're going to know who's renewing leases and why, when the market's getting soft, they'll be more in touch with who the buyers and sellers are in the space. And the other group has a cost when they sell or buy something uh, where the group with, with those other operating businesses might even have a profit center or no cost. So they have better information, better margins, um, and they're more known within their niche. They're more likely to see the better deals. And I just see that you know, that approach, whether you call it a platform approach or a, a niche domination approach or looking at your business like a chessboard, I just see that very commonly among the centimillionaires millionaires that we work with. That's excellent. And I'm hearing that they are not only managing and controlling an entire maybe supply chain, if it was in manufacturing, but they're, they're controlling that part of their industry. You mentioned multiple businesses that kind of all support each other, maybe feeding into or supporting another aspect of the same business. And that really does come down to then control. And they have tremendous knowledge and control of that one asset class. They're not going out on some other type of investment that is outside of their wheelhouse. Is that something fairly common that you're seeing? Right. That's usually the case. Sometimes they'll say, hey, this stem cell thing, I think is going to be big. And I think we need to diversify away from only buying student housing or self storage. So let's put a stake in the ground and figure out the stem cell niche and, and expand into this area. We don't know well, but the most successful families that I know in the direct investment space often do focus on where they made their money or on one to two industries. Sometimes if they're a billion dollars plus, they might be focusing on three industries. But it's an interesting topic because, like, if you give money to a wealth manager, typically their mission is to protect your wealth, diversify it to a certain extent. Typically, their job is not to make you wealthy. Like, most people don't count on that, and that's not typically what wealth managers promise, especially these days. Um, mm -hmm. So when it comes to all of investment management, it's not all about diversification. And in the, in the part of investing as a family office, there might be part of a portfolio. There often is that should be diversified or needs to be or based on the family, their situation, perhaps it all needs to be. But many times the goal is to create wealth, then diversifying within the direct investment portfolio could be one of the worst things that you could do for some families because there's no big synergy or learning curve gained by investing in a biotech startup and then investing in a mature you know, manufacturing business across the country and then investing in a mobile app you know, uh, business in London and spreading your investments all around, you don't, you know, it's not going to allow you to dominate anything. You'll be on all these different learning curves that don't, you know, co-join anywhere. I love that you shared that. And I think a lot of times the status quo is saying, how do I just diversify, pick the hottest stock, make sure that my portfolio is well diversified over different risk classes. And instead you're saying the wealthy are, finding a way to generate wealth. They're focusing on how to create value. And you specifically mentioned business and real estate as two classifications where they can have that ownership and control and really 
have that niche marketing and dominating that industry and create wealth, not just protect what's been created. Right. Yeah, we have uh, out of our 22 families that are worth $100 million or more, and then we have a few families that are in the $30, $50 million range. None of them inherited their wealth. Um, they've created it. None of them won the lottery. Uh, none of them come from countries where they got it through, you know, political gains that were unethical or illegal. Uh, these are people that created their own wealth through control. So, and it's control of assets and strategy. And so uh, they enjoy, you know, having conversations about this and they can talk to someone who can discuss with them on a peer level, managing their direct investments. They, they find that enjoyable and kind of rare. Richard, what That's I fascinating. see with, what I see with the clients is they often say, you know, I feel like I'm wealthy when I can just pay cash for everything and I don't have to worry about any kind of debt. Um, how do how do the people that in the family office that uses use family office how do they view uh, cash payments for things and how do they view financing um, other businesses? Sure. I know uh, there's a good chunk of families that are very conservative and they want to have debt be very low or near zero. Uh, those are typically families that are getting close to moving on to second generation or they already are second or third generation. Um, the families that I work with that are trying to grow, I've got two that I'm thinking of right now that I've been speaking with recently. One's at a couple hundred million, one's at about a hundred million. Uh, they both want to grow their wealth and they both know that we're not early in the real estate cycle. So they look at it strategically and say, well, I can get great lines of cheap debt right now. And when the market turns and it's harder to get a CMBS loan or harder to get debt, uh, I want to have my debt already in place so I can buy up the assets that come to the market cheap. So mm. even when someone's worth $100 million, they might want that leverage to be playing their game in a more aggressive way. Um, but many of the clients do have very little debt in general, but when they buy an office park or a multifamily building or self storage, uh, and it's very easy to get that type of debt, then that's typically where I see debt in their portfolios on those commercial assets where it's just so easy to, to get the debt and the cash flowing asset is more than paying for that debt. There might be a tax advantage to having some debt on it. Um, that's how it's usually uh, occurring. And the other thing is that even if they even if they do have very little debt, I would imagine that they can turn those those uh, property properties into quick lines of credit or already have lines of credit against those, so that they can seize opportunities when they appear. Right, right, for sure. One of my clients has so much cash with one bank that they'll give them a one percent uh, line of credit. Uh, and many times families are famous for being able to go to a broken deal or a deal that has to close quickly because of a death or a divorce or a lawsuit or an embarrassment to a public entity and it has to get off the books of GE or some publicly traded REIT or something. And the ability for the family to close quick and close in cash and then worry about the financing the next month is something that helps them sometimes grab assets and get an extra discount or just get a window of opportunity that wouldn't be open to anybody else. That's really interesting that you mentioned that. I was actually going to ask you next, and you kind of all, almost already answered it, but I'll just bring this to the forefront. So as you see working with ultra-wealthy families, do you see that they place that value then 
on having cash and liquidity in advance of the deal so that they are able to jump into that opportunity when it presents itself. Yeah, for sure. I don't think uh, families like being non-liquid and without cash to move on opportunities. Most of the families I work with can't find enough excellent opportunities. And then what happens when I say that often at like our our family office club uh, conferences is that people say, oh, well, I've got amazing opportunities. Look at this office park here and the office park there. But uh, many times these families get a lot of deal flow. So they might invest in one out of 200 or one out of 500 deal teasers shown to them. And um, many times what they think is great deal flow and that meets all their strike zones is far off from what other people come knocking on the door saying, we have great deal flow. We're an amazing fund manager. Uh, there's often a, a disconnect there. That's really interesting. And, and you talked about um, wanting to have the right deal flow, but then also we were just talking before the podcast today about saying no. And I know that Warren Buffett is famous for saying no more times than he says yes. And, and that whole idea of being able to say no to the things that don't align allows you to say yes to the one thing that does. And I'm hearing that you're saying when you are in that space, you really are only investing in the deals that are absolutely right for you. You're not investing in just anything that comes your way. Right, for sure. Like it has to meet uh, many different criteria to make sense for a family uh, or to make sense to say yes to something. And so families always want more and more deal flow of a given quality level. Um, but by the very nature of it, they shouldn't be saying yes to more than one out of every hundred or two to 500 deals that they're seeing. And many families in the past have been very private. So we work with a lot of families on helping them protect their private name, come up with a name for their family office that not only shields their privacy, but also allows the entity of the family office to be relatively public about what they are investing in and what they are looking for and position that brand of the family office so it actually attracts and is often found by those who are looking for capital uh, if that person meets the criteria that the family office is looking for. So for example, if it's a um, family office that wants to invest in hospitals, they could have a logo and a brand name for their family office that isn't Wilson Family Office. It could be you know, Healthcare XYZ Family Office or some other type of named family office where just by reading the name of it, or it could be a hospital investor group, et cetera, just by reading the name of it, uh, people kind of get what they probably do. And it's easier to keep them in mind, easier to find them online if they speak at a hospital event or uh, are a participant there even. People will find them more often. And it just brings the deal flow that's curated versus saying, yeah, we're the Wilson family office. And then no one knows what you do or what you focus on, and they're showing you a self-storage deal in New Hampshire when maybe you're just trying to acquire hospitals in Southern California. You know, so I think a lot of families need help with that, and they just think, oh, I can't say anything publicly because then people will find out who we are and how much we're worth. Uh, and they're really just at the same time complaining they have no deal flow, but they're hiding under a rock. So I help them kind of bridge that and say, yeah. well, you know, you don't have to use your name, but you can be public at the same time and try to work them through that thought process. Richard, could you, is there anything that you see kind of rise to the forefront? If you kind of had to look across many different family offices that you've worked with, 
what are some of those criteria of excellent deals that they're looking for? And now I realize they're going to be in different, uh, different industries, maybe different um, investment capital required level, um, but what are some of the attributes that you see consistently over and over that do shape excellent deals? Sure. So most families are only going to invest in early stage deals if that's where they've made their money, or maybe the person's local to them and they just move so far up the trust curve and the relationship curve that they make an exception. So I know that there might be people wondering, oh, is it, are, you know, can a family office invest in my early idea? Uh, only if they made their money in that space typically. So I just want to get that out of the way. Otherwise, mm -hmm. families typically want to invest in things that have survived in the ocean and have started to grow legs and they can prove that they can walk on the sand and survive in the real world. Um, and so they're looking for things that are operating and profitable. And typically, even small family offices want a business that's making 400, 500,000 a year in profit. Uh, in that ballpark range to a million dollars in profit or more. Middle-sized family offices are looking at one to three million EBITDA or more, and the largest of them, you know, really start at, at three to five million of profits a year or 10 million a year or more. And the reason for that is, um, you know, kind of, you know, I have an example of this that came in this week. There's someone who's wanting to buy a bunch of equipment to start a business uh, where they'd be leasing out the equipment and it'd be a $5 million investment. And they hope that this operating business would grow to X amount of profits in three years. And they're looking for a family to invest the $5 million in this new operation. And I told them, well, family offices typically wouldn't want to take that risk. You have operational risk. You have you know, the high expense up front, and then you have nothing covering that at the start. You have no revenue flow. Whereas if you went to a business that was, say, making 600000 a year in profit, um, typically that business would only be worth three to four times profit. Um, so you might be spending $1.8 or $2 million. You might have to buy some of that equipment because there's fixed assets in there. Um, so that might put you back another uh, couple of million dollars for that used equipment perhaps. Um, and so you'd be in it for you know under the $5 million, but you'd have the 600000 a year profit coming in plus some of that you know debt coverage serviced on that equipment. So my point is that Families can look around. There's everyone with an exciting cannabis or cryptocurrency or a new business idea or mobile app or some thing that's going to change the world. But what families typically want is something that already is working. It already is making half a million to several million profit a year. And then they'll pay three, four, five times profits to buy into that business, oftentimes wanting control, sometimes not. Um, and then they can add strategic value to that business. Um, versus taking risk on a startup one or having no control in some huge business because they created their wealth through control. So uh, that's typically the fair way of what family offices are, are looking for. Thank you for answering that. And I, I feel like you really broke that down really well. Um, what would you see as ultra-wealthy families are in business or in real estate? I know you mentioned that as well. Do they ever retire? Is, it, is retiring really something on their radar as in the typical, let me build up enough assets to never work again in my life or never have to focus on investing again? Or are they really wanting to maintain their control in the assets that they're building? Kind of what do you see more commonly? Um, probably 80% of the time, I see that they never truly retire, even 
when they do quote unquote retire, they're still acting as kind of chairman of the family office and still working two to four hours a day. I think it was Andrew Carnegie who said that after running his business for 20 years, he found that anyone that has to work more than three hours a day doesn't know how to delegate and has no idea what they're doing. Uh, because in three hours a day, he could make the decisions he needs to make to manage his thousand employees and manage all of his assets and his empire as one of the wealthiest people alive in his time. Of course, when you're a billionaire, it's, it's easier to have all those helping hands around you. Um, but it's kind of a, you know, a damn soul, the notion of focusing more and more on unique ability and having that, that team around you that's highly capable. So I think even the, I'd say only 20% of the people are so like truly retire, retire and just cash out. And sometimes when that is the case, it's because it's in a very fast moving, very expensive, very high CapEx game, such as biotech or pharma or high tech. And maybe they've cashed out twice on some space and to play that game. You have to be the, you know, Mark Cuban, you know, working 24 hours a day, grinding it, high-tech guy to still play that game at the top level with your own company. So that, I think that's the case of most often when people retire. I really like how you brought out that idea of having that support team that's highly capable where you're not, it's not this grind, which maybe as an entrepreneur is getting started, they're building a business, they're going to have more of their time spent in the business. I know you mentioned that sometimes even as somebody's continuing to grow, they've already been successful, they might be working even more. But at the same time, that mindset difference between I'm just grinding and slaving away versus I'm building this team so that I can have this capable team around me and I can focus on my unique ability, that really is able to then leverage your business and, and allow you to maintain that self-sustainable business throughout your life instead of having to retire. Right, for so, sure. And I think... Uh... One thing I left out before that was pretty critical is that like some people can hear about this and be like, yeah, okay, well, it's great when you're worth a hundred million, but I'm here trying to grow my small business. So how, how is this relevant? Um, but I often see strategies that these people use that anyone can use at any size. And um, in Bern Harnish's book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, you know, he talks about the idea of choke points and I see family offices using these a lot and just thinking strategically about, what your biggest bottleneck is, what slows down your business, your competitors' businesses, and acquiring that choke point, like in the movie 300, and everyone has to go through a narrow canyon, and they decide to attack the enemy there, or in the real estate business, if your high cost is property management or acquisition fees, or in a manufacturing business, if your cost is retooling, and you can figure out how to not only cut down that cost, but be so innovative in how you do your own tooling that you now can sell that tooling service to third parties and create a profit center. You've now flipped the formula and took in your biggest headache and used that raw material to you know, produce another profit center uh, while removing a headache that all your competitors still have. And I think that there's lessons like that to be taken from the family office space all over the place. So that's part of my interest in working in it is just to selfishly be taking those and applying it to my own business. And I hope listeners here who are in that position can, you know, benefit from this conversation in that way too. That's fascinating. I um, was very reminiscent of Napoleon Hill and how he came about creating uh, the Think and Grow Rich as well. So I, I love that you shared that. Um, right. So can you explain a little bit of in your work, you're helping the ultra wealthy to create 
family mission and values and goals and objectives and a governance plan to make sure that they're not investing in things that don't serve them. So can you talk a little bit about that and why having that family mission and the values is important? Sure. I mean, essentially, anything you do before you know your values and objectives and missions is probably just a waste of time in part or in full. So, like, you just don't know if you are aligning your energy or saying yes to meetings that are appropriate if you don't know what you're trying to get done. So if you haven't thought about it much, like one family I was just talking to in Chicago uh, worth over $50 million yesterday, their new family office, they're like, yeah, we don't have any really restraint on what we can invest in. And they said it like it was a liberating thing, Mm -hmm. but they're at a very early learning stage of like, okay, well, you're going to learn the hard way that you don't want to look at everything because there's the mobile gaming app company from Nigeria and there's a self-storage in Australia that you'll never be able to do due diligence on properly. And there's, you know, mining in Ukraine, et cetera. And uh, so it gets narrowed down over time. And the more you can, like, speed up that path of, like, what are we looking to do here? What's our timeline? What risk appetite do we have? What income needs do we have? What multigenerational planning do we need to think of? And just really thinking about what we want and don't want to be very explicit and intentional about what you're saying yes to allows you to add so much more power. So if you only want to look at consumer product companies that um, are based along the eastern seaboard that are doing 200000 a year to 600000 a year in profits, and you don't want to consider ones that are highly regulated, um, that would give you hundreds of companies that you could be meeting with, talking to, and you can go into the niche events where, the, where there's fish in the barrel and they're all congregating at some consumer product, you know, uh, growth uh, conference or something. You can build a database of them, reach out to them like we have to source deals for our clients. Um, it's night and day more effective than saying, yeah, we're investing anything in the consumer product world. It's just not true. You just don't know it yet. You know, like you just aren't there yet. Um, and it's like someone's coming out of college saying, like, yeah, I want to work in business. Any job in business will do. It's like, no, it won't. You just you don't know yet. Um, and say, you know, you have to say that in a non-condescending way, obviously. But, you mm-hmm. know, in short, that's the reality is families need to go through that evolution, which can be done in part through conversation instead of years of wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's part of the value that we try to bring to families. I love that. And again, that comes back to focusing, which you absolutely can't know if you don't have the experience. But it sounds like if you are providing that guidance by asking the right questions, that really helps them then to get really clear ahead of the game instead of waiting to go through the years of experience to figure it out. Right. Usually it's the industry they made their money in, uh, something they've always been passionate or curious about, or the strategies they use to create their wealth. That's where there's going to be kernels of the truth of where they probably should be focused going forward. That's great. That's great. We typically talk about investor identity as well, and that being the alignment of your passion, your knowledge, your experience, and where you have your own unique ability as well, and and how those things really come together to help you be able to focus on the right type of investing. So that's something that we can speed up even with those right questions for somebody who might not be a family office yet or might not be an ultra-wealthy family but is on their path to figuring out what is, what's their niche and their unique, um, their unique ability. 
for sure. I couldn't agree more. Like we have um, capital raising uh, workshops and boot camps, and we go through a Jim Collins three circle like hedgehog model where we say, you know, it has to match your DNA, what you're passionate about, and also what you could make a lot of money doing. Otherwise, someone else who's more passionate is going to run circles around you and make your life hard exactly like I try to do to my competition. So don't say yes uh-huh. to something that doesn't match all three or you just won't survive in the jungle. You're going to be number two or number three or number four in your space if it doesn't match all three, you know? That's excellent. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. So what would you say in your own personal life? I know you said you're kind of looking into this world and saying, how can I model these principles for myself? What would you say are maybe three guiding wealth principles that you are choosing to live by in your own life? Sure. Uh, the first one would just be maximizing my focus on my unique ability and my team's focus on uh, the, making the family office space more efficient for people who are the investor um, or allocating. So what that means is not investing in things which are disconnected from that. Uh, we've looked at investing in multifamily or in the inefficient niche of RV parks or self-storage, and we'll just come to the conclusion that, you know, um, part of our model is getting people together as a community at events. So, you know, long-term, if we want to allocate commercial real estate, we should probably be, you know, buying conference venues. And we know how to run them, so we've negotiated 80 contracts, and we know that good service brings people back and we can be running our own events within the venue. Uh, it just makes so much more sense. So that's an example of that in practice as an investment, but that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is just keeping in mind that if we stick to our niche, we can be diversified within our niche of how we occur revenue, some subscription, some not, some from families, some from capital raisers, but that we don't need, in my case, Uh, We don't need high diversification of industry or spreading our money around, and we can't always be looking to fix other people's problems. I think it's um, tough for an entrepreneur who's figured out their unique ability to be strict with themselves on how they're going to apply that for other people, or you can oftentimes spend a lot of energy trying to solve other people's operating businesses when you could just be reinvested in your own and knowing where that line is is, – can be challenging. So I think that the uh, diversification uh, balance is always something that, you know, we're trying to live and work by. And then uh, the third point is just to try to keep things simple and, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing. So we're basically, you know, saying no to as much as we can uh, and just working with families on two things. We help them start and develop their family offices would help them source better, higher quality direct investment deal flow. And that's the only things that we do for families. That's the only thing that I do within our business. My team is here in case someone's looking to raise capital and they, you know, got our free book, you know, on capitalraising.com. They want to come to a workshop or, you know, my team is here to help run the events and we have our databases and our training programs, et cetera. Um, but we, in this industry, in the investment space, as I'm sure you guys know, everybody has a deal they want to joint venture with you on. Everyone wants to pay you on performance for referring an investor or for, you know, being their partner. And, um, you know, we've, we've been pitched you know, well over a thousand opportunities like that. 
And so for us, it's just very important, like we talked about before we started recording, to say no to almost everything. Um, you know, like you said with Warren Buffett, you know, the difference between successful and very successful people is that the very successful say no to almost everything. And I literally have on my one pager that I have where I brush my teeth, by my bed, in my office, in my to-do list notebook. I have a one pager with my monthly goals, my annual goals, and just things I know I need to stick to. And the first one on there is say no to literally everything because mm-hmm. there's such a bombardment. And I think a lot of family offices can relate to that. A lot of people who run podcasts can relate to that. Um, mm-hmm. So for me, all three of those things are very much connected, which keeps my life relatively simple because inside that bubble, there's still a lot of chaos and complexity. Oh, yeah. Uh, we, we would like to thank you for not saying no to our podcast. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on here. And not what, other, to me. <laughs> what other resources uh, would you suggest that uh, our listeners who are looking into uh, helping start a family office for their clients uh, participate in the family office model? Are there specific resources that they can start um, re- researching and reaching out to those resources? Yeah, for sure. Um, for people looking to start a family office, the most laser-focused resource would be our book with a simple title, How to Create a Family Office. Uh, you can get that on Amazon or for free on our website at singlefamilyoffices.com. Um, you know, if somebody is raising capital or just is figuring out the ABCs of the family office space and they don't know whether they need one or not or what is going on uh, with the whole concept, then we have a free book at familyoffices.com, which is our single family office book. It's kind of more of an overview of the industry and not so focused just on starting one. Great. So how can listeners connect with you? Um, the best way would be to, you know, get our, our free book from the website and then come to one of our live events. Um, if someone wants to see how to be working with myself and my team, uh, they can send an email directly in to me at uh, richard at familyoffices.com. And uh, also, you know, our staff here, you know, get sometimes over 100 inquiries in a day. We try to be as helpful as possible with all of our free resources. And, and the phone number for that is 305-503-9077. And, our whole business model is just to try to be very, very helpful. So someone might follow our brand or read our books or listen to our family office podcast for five years and then decide to do something business-wise with us. And that's totally fine. That's like, uh, just like you guys doing this podcast, you know, it's 5% of the audience might actually engage, you know, in the next year or two. And that's kind of the whole model. That's excellent. And thank you for sharing all of your contact information. We'll make sure that that's in the show notes as well for this podcast. And that will be available to our listeners, so your website, your phone number, your email address. And I just want to thank you again. I know we kind of already said that, but thank you so much for spending your um, nearly an hour with us today here on the Money Advantage podcast. We really appreciate your time, your insight, your intellectual capital that you shared, and just your experience in working with the ultra-wealthy and successful and kind of what you're seeing with that and how we can model that in our own lives to build and create true wealth. So as we wrap up in closing special thanks also to our listeners and remember success leaves clues the model the successful few not the crowd 
and build a life and business that you love. To learn how high-performing entrepreneurs 10x or more returns on liquid capital without giving up quick access to cash, go to themoneyadvantage.com forward slash liquid dash capital to get The Unfair Advantage, your 20-minute easy-to-read guide on maximizing your savings. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.